Hello everyone, and welcome to Local Folks Podcast, Season 3, Episode 7. I'm Bob Madar, and uh, I'm still in Costa Rica. And like people all over the world, my wife Christine and I are staying put at home. We're in a small, comfortable house in the little town of Peregoso in the canton of Perez de Ladon. It's uncertain when we'll be able to return to the United States. Right now, all the major airlines have suspended flights in and out of Costa Rica. So we're pretty much taking things day by day. Now, one benefit from a prolonged sojourn at home is that I've had a lot of time to think about what I've learned from the local folks over the last several years on how to work together to solve community problems. Over the past three years, I've talked to local folks helping people at the end of life, uh, season one, hospice, helping low-income people put food on the table and heat their homes, uh, season two, the gleaners, and helping people who are homeless, season three, helping the homeless. And I have learned a lot from all of them. So this episode is going to be different from most of the others I've produced over the last three years in that I'm going to spend most of my time ruminating about what I've learned about how to work together to make our communities better places to live. And um, before I get started ruminating, I have to say I'm no expert in any of this. I'm just a local guy who's been sticking his nose into other people's business. I guess if I was to claim any expertise at all, it would be as a classroom teacher at the high school level. I was pretty good at that and spent a fair bit of time after I quit teaching working as a consultant with schools around the country, helping them to improve instruction. And I do see some striking parallels between what I understand to be effective classroom practice and the lessons I've learned from local folks. So it's possible, (laughs) as I ruminate away, that some of my experience in education uh, may well sneak into the discussion. I guess the first lesson I've learned is there are a lot of people quietly working very hard to improve our local community here in Oregon that I didn't know anything about until I started this project. Now it may be these folks and the work they do are well known to other people, but I sure didn't know about them. And the work they do and the time they give to our community is impressive. People willingly donate countless hours a week to helping others, from providing needed human contact and companionship to hospice patients or respite to caregivers so they can go take a break or go to a movie or take a walk in a local park, to gathering and delivering food to people who are unable to leave their home, to providing a safe, warm place for homeless people to have a cup of coffee, something to eat, and a place to socialize. Local folks who volunteer are already making an incredible difference in my community. For example, in 2017, the gleaners of Lynn and Benton counties, volunteers all, gathered 2.4 million pounds of food and distributed it to 7,000 people. I'm so impressed with how much people give to others, largely unnoticed. They're just out there every day, making my community of Corvallis a better place to live for all of us. And just why do they volunteer so much of their time and effort to help others? You know, I've asked local folks that question many times over the last three years. And all of the answers I've received have a common thread running through them. 
from a gleaner picking beans. Well, it just feels good to help someone in need. To a hospice volunteer, I've received so much from the patients I visit. To a volunteer at the Corvallis Daytime Drop-In Center. These people are my group. I love coming here. Everyone said some version of, because giving to other people also gives to me. I remember something the hospice chaplain said, and it still sticks with me. She said, at the end of life, one of the most important things people ask is, did I make a difference in other people's lives? And the answer to that question is much more important than was I successful? Did I make a lot of money? Did I write books, etc.? People help others because they want to make a positive difference. And from what I've seen, that need to make a positive difference is a powerful motivation for everyone I talk to. And you know, for some people, their religious faith is important as well. I'm an, I'm an atheist, uh, and I'm quite skeptical about all religions. But I have to say that for many of the folks I met over the last three years, living the teachings of their faith was the foundation of their service to others. And I respect them for living and acting according to the tenets of their faith. I guess if I've learned anything over the last 55 or so years, it is relationships count. And what do I mean by that? Just this. Building quality relationships with people is key to being able to work together effectively. You know, as a classroom teacher, it was imperative that I let my students know I respected them and valued them for who they were, not who I thought they should be. If a student came into my class with a spike mohawk and body piercings, well, that was just fine with me. Their choice in dress and personal grooming had nothing to do with their ability to learn and contribute interesting ideas and perspectives to the class discussions. Once my students realized that I accepted them for who they were without judgment and would listen carefully and respectfully to what they had to say, we could concentrate on what was important, teaching and learning. And over the past three years, I have seen this principle at play countless times between the local folks who do so much to help others. For example, I remember talking with Jolene, a Lumina Hospice volunteer. And at one point in our discussion, I asked her what was one of the most unusual things she had done for someone who was close to death. Bought someone a pack of cigarettes, was her answer. The patient she was visiting was dying from lung cancer and really wanted a cigarette. So Jolene, who is not a smoker and personally disapproves of the habit, went out and got some cigarettes and a lighter, and the woman she was caring for happily had a smoke. As Jolene said, it's her death, and if she wants to have a cigarette, then she can have one. I remember talking with Jim, the coordinator of the South Benton County Gleaners, after observing a meeting of all 14 coordinators where they had to come to consensus about how to deal with a very serious problem. Several coordinators had very different opinions about how to proceed, and I told Jim after the meeting how impressed I was by the way they listened to and respected what everyone had to say, and worked very hard to come to an agreement that everyone could live with. He said something like, well, 
If we can't respect each other's ideas, then we can't do what's important, get food and wood to people who need it. I also mentioned there was a diversity of religions, ethnic background, and political beliefs among the people at the meeting, and his response was, yeah, well, we leave all that stuff at the door before we come in. Boy, you know, when I was consulting, I facilitated a lot of meetings. From groups of teachers to teams of senior district administrators. And many of those professionals could really benefit from adopting the approach of the Gleaner coordinators. Status, education, and power do not necessarily guarantee effective communication or action. In fact, I think they often guarantee dysfunction. And that idea of respecting people for who they are and not judging them is central to everything the local folks at the Corvallis Daytime Drop-In Center do. As far as I could tell during my visits to the center, the only requirement guests have to meet in order to receive the many services that are offered is to register and be checked in by a volunteer when they come in in the morning. I saw folks sitting together at tables, drinking coffee, eating, and socializing. I saw folks sitting by themselves, not talking to anyone. And I saw people taking a nap in a warm, dry place. I also saw folks talking with healthcare professionals and counselors, and people working with the Director of Project Action to replace needed documents so they could get an ID. The volunteers at the center treated everyone with respect and kindness, and they treated them as equals. Not once did I hear a volunteer patronize or talk down to someone at all. And at no time did I hear the words you should or you have to or why didn't you? About 27 or so years ago, when I was teaching at Crescent Valley High School in Corvallis, Oregon, I designed a course called Advanced Field Biology. Teams of students chose ecologically related projects that were of some benefit to the community and worked on them all year. Each team had a mentor, generally scientists from Oregon State University, or one of the local federal or state agencies, such as the Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife, and spent a considerable amount of time outside of the regular school day working in the field. I remember one warm Wednesday afternoon in early spring, and maybe it was 1996, the school was closed and I went for a walk at a local park. A small stream, Oak Creek, flows through the park, and a team of students was working with a scientist from the Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife, to characterize the cutthroat trout population in the stream. As I crossed a bridge over the creek, I saw them in the water, waders on, and said something like, Hey, what are you guys doing out here on a day off? And one of the team looked up at me and she said, We sample on Wednesdays, and went back to work. That team absolutely owned their project. Under the guidance of their mentor, they developed the sampling schedule, helped choose the sampling sites, and made a number of other decisions about how to proceed with the work. Ownership and engagement are really powerful motivators, and that principle is at the center of all three of the organizations I've featured in Local Folks Podcast. By definition, the approach of Lumina Hospice is focused on the patient's wishes and needs. Everything local folks who help people at the end of life do, be they staff or volunteers, is predicated on the patient's wishes. 
If someone wants to discuss books, a volunteer will sit with them and talk about books. If the patient wants a companion to watch television with, a volunteer will sit and watch TV, even if the programming chosen by the patient is not something the volunteer would watch at home. It is the ultimate in patient-centered care. By honoring the wishes of the patient, hospice truly provides compassionate, effective care at the end of life. I think the Gleaners and their relationship with Lynn Benton Food Share in Corvallis is a perfect, almost textbook example of the power of giving ownership and control to the people you are helping. Food Share provides all kinds of technical assistance to the 14 gleaning groups it serves. From workshops on home canning to training on how to manage conflict among group members, the programs offered by the Food Share are crucial to the incredible success of the Gleaners in my corner of Oregon. But for me, the genius of the approach taken by FoodShare in providing support to the Gleaners is this. At every possible opportunity, FoodShare makes sure that each gleaning group has as much control over its policies and operations as possible. Each group has its own board of directors and its own bylaws. Some groups charge dues, some groups don't. And each group has their own procedures of distributing food and firewood and they have a lot of pride in what they do. I remember something Betty, coordinator of the Harrisburg Gleaners, said to me while repacking donated bulk food at the Lynn Benton Food Share warehouse. Without Food Share, we wouldn't be here. And without us, they wouldn't be able to feed all the people we do. Gleaners have a lot of pride in their organizations because they have a lot of say in how they operate. I think the approach taken by the local folks who help the homeless at the Corvallis Daytime Drop-In Center exemplifies the importance of ownership and control. Or, to use a slightly different expression, the power dynamics in a helping relationship. As I said earlier, the only requirement for guests at the CDDC is to register and check in with a volunteer as they enter the premises. And that's it. No one pressures them to do anything. If they want to sit at a table all day and drink coffee, so be it. Volunteers are open and engaging and treat everyone with respect and kindness and are always ready to sit down and have a conversation. The nature of that conversation is up to the guest. They are under no pressure to talk about problems or issues. They are just welcomed for who they are. If they need something, be it as small as a piece of twine to tie a tarp together, Someone at the center, often Rick, the director of Project Action, will provide it. If they need medical care, healthcare professionals from Good Samaritan Hospital and Benton County Public Health are there to help them get it. If they want counseling, a counselor from Community Outreach in Corvallis will sit down and talk with them. If they need a mailing address, the center will provide one. The crucial thing here is that the guest has to want the service and help no one is telling them that they have to change or that they should get help or any directive language at all. But when someone decides that they are ready to change, maybe to get sober or to get help for a mental illness or to begin the process of getting a job and housing, the volunteers at the center are ready to assist them. The key is the person has to decide for themselves that they want to change. And if they don't, well, they're still welcome at the center and are treated with the same kindness and dignity as any other guest.
You know, over the last three years, I've met a lot of very kind, compassionate, dedicated, and hardworking people. And I have learned a lot in the process. I'm pretty sure that most communities have similar groups of local folks, all working to make their hometowns and cities better places to live, often with little or no recognition from the rest of us. Treating people with dignity and respect, regardless of how they look, think, believe, and act, can be challenging at times. But I firmly believe it is key to building and sustaining healthy communities. I've seen the power of tolerance, understanding, and compassion, and the magic of giving people the tools and support they need to help themselves when they are ready to do so. There are local folks in all our communities who have a lot to teach us if we just take the time to listen. Well, this is the last episode of Season 3, Helping the Homeless. As I said in the introduction, uh, Christine and I are still in Costa Rica, and right now it's a little uncertain when we'll be able to get back to Oregon. So, Local Folks Podcast is going to take a bit of a break. Season 4 is in the planning stages, and if all goes well, it should be up and running hmm, by August 1st. In the meantime, I thank you all so very much for listening. And please take care of yourselves during this challenging time. And remember uh, to treat each other with compassion, tolerance, and a great big old whack of humor. Adios.